As we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, before we read this chapter this morning, let me set the context by reminding us that Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Corinth to correct them and to follow up on things that he had previously communicated or taught when he was with them in person. So this is not just a message about doctrine and so on, but he's responding to specific things that are going on in the Corinthian church, and he's responding to specific questions that they have raised, and he is responding or he's commenting on specific behaviors that he's aware of in the church. So he touches on all sorts of different topics, one after the other. It's not in a, in a, just in a smooth, linear flow. And so right now, he's writing in this chapter, just as we saw in chapter 7. He opens this chapter with a quote of something that the Corinthians were saying of themselves. The Corinthians were saying of, their, of themselves, we have knowledge, we know, we understand. And they felt that they knew what was going on, they knew what was right and wrong, and in fact, they knew better than Paul, and that they had come to their own conclusions and determined their own actions regarding food sacrificed to idols. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, 
If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Uh, it seems like an abrupt change of topics when you read that first sentence where Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols. And then he goes on to say, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It seems like it's completely different statements. But that juxtaposition makes sense only when you realize that the Corinthians were being puffed up. They were being proud and boastful of what they knew. And that sounds very familiar because we read in 1 Corinthians 5 how they were puffed up or boasting about the sexual immorality in their midst. And at that point, I made the same similar kind of statement that they thought they knew what to do about it. They, they thought they knew what should happen with their bodies or how they should treat their, these situations and how they should deal with what was a clear sin. They, they felt they knew what to do. So, and they were boasting about how they were dealing with it. And so Paul is making the same point, just as he did previously, that it isn't about what they knew, and it isn't about what they were eating and drinking. It was not about the food. It was about their heart attitude. It was about how they were thinking about God, God's truth, and God's servants, in this case, Paul. Now, the aim of our faith in God is not knowledge. We're not saying we believe in God so that we'll know everything. Right? I know everything about how to live my life. I know everything about what the Bible says. I know everything about what will happen in the future. I know about the end times. I know what will happen to this person. So the aim of my knowing God and having faith in God is so that I will gain knowledge. No, that's not the case. In fact, Jesus, when he speaks about the things that he does not know, is demonstrating for us that the focus for us is not to know everything. It's not to say, I know everything, therefore I'll do this, or I'll not do that, or this is what I'll do. The aim of our faith, the aim of our faith in God, of establishing that relationship with him, is love. Love of God as expressed to him and to others. That's the aim of our faith. So that in faith, we would grow in the knowledge of God in terms of the knowledge of his love for us, and therefore, we would extend that love to others. So, in fact, in a few chapters from now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul goes into a much more detailed description of what that agape love of God looks like when it is expressed to others. He goes into it with great detail, talks about what that love is. But here in chapter 8, and the, and the translation is a little unwieldy. Some of your versions have slightly different phrases in those first two opening statements. But here in chapter 8, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us is this. If anyone thinks they have arrived at knowledge, this person does not yet know as they ought to know. But if anyone loves, meaning loves God truly and loves others truly, 
If anyone loves, this person truly knows or has true knowledge and is known by God as having true knowledge. So when you love God, when you love others, when you understand what the depth and the width and the height and the, the scope of God's love is, that's when God is also knowing you in terms of the knowledge that you have. God affirms it, right? So that's what he's talking about when he says this knowledge, you know, don't think that you have knowledge, you know, that you know everything. You're just being puffed up. Instead, what is, what is necessary is to have love and the love of God that builds up, right? So having knowledge is both relevant and important. And in addition to other scriptures that encourage us to grow in knowledge and wisdom, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we get there, we'll see that the list of spiritual gifts includes the gift of the word of knowledge. So God is not against knowledge. He's not telling us not to know something. He's not telling us to remain ignorant. It's not a blind faith. It is not something where we just simply say, well, I have no idea what this is and why God did this and what you know, justification is and sanctification is. And I don't know anything about that, but I just believe. I just trust God. No, he's not asking us to do that. He says, in fact, if you don't know something, ask for wisdom. Seek it out. Pursue those things. Know and grow in the knowledge of God. Do that. Be diligent about that. But knowledge does not serve as the primary basis for Christian behavior. Our words and our actions, especially in terms of how we relate to people, in terms of how we judge people, in terms of how we encourage them or don't encourage them, in terms of how we respond to what they say, when they may say something that is not so right. Our words and our actions in all those situations are based on love. So you don't even have to be saying, oh, I know exactly what to do in this situation. I know exactly which verse to apply. I know all the doctrine about this. But rather you would say, Lord, help me to love. Help me to love. And help me to speak with love. Help me to speak with grace. Help me to speak in such a way that your love is manifest. Knowledge is not for building ourselves up as the end or as an end unto itself. Knowledge is a means to a greater end to build others up according to their needs. And the greatest need always is for people to know the love of God so that they will enter into a loving, eternal relationship with God. That's our goal. That's our intent. That's what we're going after. We're not trying to go to somebody and say, let me tell you what I know. We're trying to say to them, let me tell you who I know and why I know him this way, and what the love of God can mean for you, and through this, how you can establish an eternal, loving relationship with the Father. So, and I'll come back to this need to know the love of God. For now, let's get back to the food sacrifice to idols. Here in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul refers to meat, or eating the meat that is in an idol's temple. And he makes references to idols and food here in chapter 8 and in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 21, 
while referencing the Lord's Supper, the communion, the, the breaking of bread together, what we will participate in next week, when he's writing about that in chapter 10, he writes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. That's, you know, so he's making a pretty strong statement about not corrupting things or not doing something that would be ungodly or demonic or, you know, not of the Lord. And in chapter 10, verse 25, you know, Paul says, he's in a very contra contrasting statement. He says, Paul's, there's nothing wrong in eating meat that's sold in the marketplace that may have come from the temple from having been first offered to the gods. He says, you, you know, that may happen. You may buy some meat in the marketplace and they, it may have come from the temple. And he says, well, you know, that's, that may happen. But what Paul is referring to in these chapters is a difference between the two different ways in which you could eat food that was sacrificed to idols. One, he says, you may be participating in a specific temple ritual or cultic meal where the food, the meat, was explicitly part of an offering to the idol and eating the food would cause someone who observed your actions to assume that you were worshiping the idol. So that is one way in which you could be eating this food sacrificed to idols. You're involved in a specific ritual, you're involved in a cultic meal, and as you're doing this, somebody who is observing you would say, oh, you must be worshiping this idol. Because that was the purpose. That was what was intended. That was what was going on in that ritual. Or two, you could be eating food that came from the temple, but was sold in the marketplace, and someone who observed your actions, they wouldn't assume that you were worshiping the idol, but they may still think that you were doing something wrong. Because they may say, oh, this food came from the temple. Right? And Here's the point that Paul makes. Whether you're just, whatever your justification for why you were eating the food that you were, if your brother is offended by it, or based on your actions, your brother thinks that it's okay for him, or your sister thinks that it's okay for her to be participating in a ritual or going into some cultic behavior, because they say, oh, well, he's doing it, then maybe it's okay for me. So if they're offended by what you did, or they are misguided, misled by what you did, or they're, they're, they're thinking that it's okay to honor all these other gods along with Jesus, they have not understood why Jesus alone, if they're misunderstanding what your actions are, and if your brother's conscience or your sister's conscience is bothered by your actions, then he says, don't do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. So don't do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. The focus here is not on your rights to eat or do whatever you want. Right? We've gone through this even as we went through the previous scriptures. The focus here is not on whether you're eating this kind of food or that kind of food or not eating this kind of food. It's the focus here is to look out for your brother's and your sister's best interest. So you're not trying to justify your actions. You're saying, what will help build up my brother or sister? Maybe they're weak. 
Maybe their conscience is, is bothering them. Maybe if I explained this to them, they would get it. But my first and primary goal is not to say to them, oh, let me tell you about why you should be okay with this, right? And why you're weak and that's why you're thinking this way. Your first priority is to say, what can I do that will help my brother and my sister? So if they're offended, their conscience is bothered, they're asking me a question, fine, I'll stop what I'm doing. I won't let them stumble. I won't let them have some sort of question or some, something that's bothering them. And for their sake, I will suppress or I will not do what may be okay for me to do. I will pay attention to what they need. When we were in Romans chapter 14, some months ago now when we were in Romans chapter 14, and we were going through Romans chapter 14, verses 12 to 13, and then verses 22 to 23, it says this. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. What's Paul's point there and point here? It's not about the food. It's about faith. It's about building others up. It's about keeping your rights and preferences and your things, your desires between you and God. Not to make that the point of contention. Not to make that the way that you would divide with somebody else. But just as it goes on in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, that we would make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That we would be saying, Lord God, how can I build my brother up? And how can my brother build me up? We wouldn't be saying, oh no, you're offended? Wow, tough. No, we would be saying, oh no, okay, I understand. Let me do something different so that you are not affected. And what can you do that will help me? What can we do to mutually edify each other? How do we maintain the peace of God in this situation? That's the promise. That's the things that, that God is asking for and God is pointing to. And by the way, let me make this also very clear. You know, you can think of this and we say, well, you know, yeah, I'll do my best not to cause anyone to stumble, but hey, if they stumble, that's on them. Well, in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus said this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, to sin, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. He was not talking about, you know, some life preserver, you know, like a, you know, that you put it around your neck and jump in. He's talking about a weight that would be so heavy on you that if you were jumped into the water or were thrown into the water with it, you would drown. He said, it's better if you drown than if you would cause somebody to stumble this way. He took it very seriously. Right? 
he was that is not the punishment and that's not the judgment of god that was that was there he's trying to contrast he's trying to make this point that you would not cause someone else to stumble how what ways well today in the world around us there are plenty of things where you look at it and you say well i don't know the bible doesn't explicitly tell me what i should or should not do about this area how should i handle this movies video games card games music alcohol body piercings tattoos clothing styles books social media other entertainment i mean even as i'm listing these things you're thinking of some more things and you're going through some specific details and you're thinking yeah yeah you know but oh no no mind you as i'm going through that list some of you are thinking oh i know very clearly i know very clearly where the line is this no this yes and maybe so maybe the lord has given you discernment and so on but what if your brother or your sister is not clear on that what if there is something that is causing them to not really be able to discern and what if there's something that you're doing that your brother or sister says well how come you're doing this and if you're doing this does it allow me to do that and you say well for your sake and because you've brought this to my attention i'm going to stop doing that would you be willing to do that would you be willing to say no I, you know i i'll deny myself i don't have to do this i don't have to indulge in this way i don't have to pursue this for your sake would we because again the point here and the and the thing that i'm trying to stress is not that i can give you a list that i will tell you on each sunday morning these are the new movies that are being released this one's okay to watch that one is not okay to watch that's not my point i don't want to do that but what i do want you to say and to understand is to say look how do i go to the lord how do i do things that are in faith how do i honor god how do i worship him how do i lift up the name of jesus and how do i do that and also build up my brother and my sister so that even when i know i'm doing something that is okay before the lord if it causes some kind of stumbling for my brother or my sister i'll stop doing it i'll stop doing it and i'll make sure that i can build them up i'll make sure that i look out for the well-being of my brother or my sister that is the attitude that is the way in which we need to be a church that we would be members of the body of christ you see the here's the important point the reason that what you eat is not the focus and idols are not the focus is because there is no inherent power in those things that's what paul is saying he says you know the the food doesn't have any power in it the idols don't have any power in it they don't bring you to god they're not causing you to come to god that's not what you should be focusing on we instead have to bring people to the true and living god in the way that god prescribes because there is only one god that's the important statement you need to take away from this passage it's not about the food it's about the fact that there's only one god that he needs to be worshiped in spirit and truth that he is worthy of our worship that none of these other things actually amount to anything now 
for most people, whether they're exposed to the truths of Christianity or not, or whether they have any knowledge of God and the Bible or not, when they hear anything about Christianity, they have this main question. How can one religion, out of the more than 4,000 religions in the world, claim to be the only one that is true? That seems arrogant, unloving, and exclusive. When Christians say that there is only one God, that just turns me off, and I don't want anything to do with them. Maybe you've even heard that statement. It certainly is the sentiment of the age. This exclusivity that Christianity claims, ah, it's, it's, it's terrible, it's wrong. And let me be very clear, Christianity claims to be exclusive. Right? Christianity doesn't mince words around it. The claims of the Bible are not, this is true and that may also be true. It doesn't say that. In fact, if you have any doubts, you only have to go back through what we have been studying in Ephesians, in Romans, and here in 1 Corinthians, or go back and read Acts 4.12, where it says very clearly, there is salvation in no one else, no one apart from Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Or John 14, 6, where Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, to God, except through me. Is Christianity's claim an exclusive claim? Is it saying this is the only way? Yeah, it is. The irony is that everyone in the world is actually just as exclusive about what they believe and actually worship only one God. The, the thing is that it may be a God of their own making. It may be beliefs that they came up with on their own or beliefs that they've been taught or a mix of those things. They've come up with some philosophy of their own in some way. And what they hold to may have been externally influenced. They may be brainwashed. There could be all sorts of situations for why people believe what they believe. But clearly, people in the world hold to an exclusive doctrine too. Ultimately, everyone is holding to an exclusive point of view. The difference between supposedly inclusive non-Christian religions or worldviews or beliefs and Christianity is that when these other religions say that all paths lead to the same God, they are choosing to ignore the fact that contradicting claims cannot be objectively true at the same time. You can't say all paths lead to God when one path claims one way or one means and another path claims another. You can't say then that all paths lead to God. You're clearly preferring one over the other or you're clearly saying one is exclusive. When they say that there are many gods and each of these gods say something different, then which god is speaking the truth? Because... If you say that there is inclusivity, then you have lost truth. 
And if you say that there are many paths to be joined to God, what happens if one of those paths is radically different from the other path? Which path is right? How do you know that you're on the right path? How do you know that you're actually moving in terms of this relationship with God, the true and living God? You see, the claims of the Bible, the claims of the Bible are that there is a true and living God, one God, a true and living God, that that God has revealed himself to the world in a very specific way, that that God establishes and maintains a relationship with human beings that he created, and that that God loves human beings unconditionally, and all those claims are either true collectively or they're not true. They can't be true and something else be true. They can't be partially true and then something else be partially true. They have to either be true or they're false. And so Christianity is not trying to be exclusive. It's not our goal. We're not coming to people and saying, I want to leave you out. I want to exclude you. What we're saying is, these claims, these truth claims, these statements of the Bible are either true or they're not. That's straightforward. It cannot be simultaneously true along with every other claim. It has to be either true or false, period. We, because we have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, because we have heard the call of God, because we have received his saving grace, we have come to believe that these claims are true. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, we respond and apply the word that we hear, the word that is true, by being entirely devoted to the Lord. Now, if you look at that statement and you say, wait a minute, that looks just like the statement of application, point of application from last week. Yes. Last week, as I concluded our consideration of God's good design for our bodies, our marriages, our singleness, and our sexuality, I said that our ultimate point of application is to be devoted to the Lord, to give him our hearts, our minds, our strength, our all. This week, as we consider how we deal appropriately with those things that may make someone else stumble, how we support weaker brothers and sisters, and how we realize and reinforce that there's only one God, our ultimate point of application is again to be devoted to the Lord. It's not typically our belief or our knowledge of God that convinces others to believe. It is not because we can persuade them. It is because of our devotion to the Lord that will cause someone else to pay attention to the object of our devotion. They'll say, how is it that you are devoted in this way to this God? Why? Why is it that you are devoted to God in this way? And our devotion causes them to pay attention to the object of our devotion. It is our devotion to God and love for him 
that translates into love for others and our willingness to give up our own interests for their sake so that that action will point them to God who willingly sacrificed everything for their sake. It is when we love others for their sake. It is when we seek to build them up. It is when we seek for them to be made whole that they will say, oh, there's something different here. You're not in this for your own gain. And if you are willing to tell me about some truth that is of this nature, unconditional love of this nature, oh, now I want to pay attention. And when they pay attention, they hear about a true and living God who has given everything for them, who gave all for them to be saved. That's what's going to cause people to be different, to be changed, to be transformed. It is our diligent focus on building others up that shows people that they can be living stones who are being built up in the temple of the Lord, where the Lord Jesus alone is worshipped. No other idol, no other gods, no other lords. It is our sincere desire that none would stumble, but that all would be encouraged to run the race that is set before them. It is our devotion. It is our devotion to God, our love for God, that translates to devotion in prayer, devotion to his word, devotion to our brothers and our sisters, and devotion to holy living. That's the contrast between what we're, what we're doing, where we are, who we are, and the frenzied, unfocused, stress-inducing condition of the world. The world should see a difference in us. When all this around them is in this constant churn, that they would see a group of people who are wholly devoted to God, who are calm and at rest and at peace, who are able to say, let me build you up. I'm not agitated about this. I'm not anxious about that. I'm not pursuing this. I'm not worried about that. Why? Because I am devoted to the Lord. I can live in relation to him. When we do that, when we live in that way, you know, as a church, we want to invite people. We want to invite people to the church. We want to invite people to programs and activities and so on. But the thing is that we're not inviting people to the programs. We're not inviting people to the building. We're not inviting people to anything of ourselves. We're inviting people to the Lord. We're inviting them to a life of devotion to God. We're inviting them to say, let the Lord who transformed my life transform yours. So today, the challenge for us is, are we truly living in that kind of transformation? Are we allowing the Lord to change us and to mold us and to shape us and to use us so that no matter what comes our way, no matter what we have to give up, no matter where we have to adjust something for the sake of our brother or our sister, we do it with grace, with joy, with strength, because we say, oh Lord God, it's all worth it. It's all worth it in you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And Lord, you are good to us and you love us and you care for us. And you, Lord, give us a word that encourages us, Lord, not to focus on all the things of the world and the things that would be easily debatable and questionable and so on, but rather, Lord, to focus on people, 
and to say, Lord God, what can I do to build this person up? What can I do to bring them to the true and living God? What can I do to show them that there is only one God so that I'm not trying to debate with them, but I'm trying to live my life in such a way that they will want to know you too. Lord God, make that happen. Make that possible. Help us, Lord, to live for you alone in such a way that, Lord, we are entirely, entirely devoted to you. As a church, Lord, build us up to be entirely devoted to the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.